Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning to you. You can take a seat. Um, if I've never met you before, my name is Will Chester. I'm a youth and college pastor uh, down at one of the other churches in our network that we call a diocese. Um, so I'm from uh, the Chicago suburbs, more recently, been there for about four and a half years or so, and I've known Scott and Marissa since we were all in college together. Um, so it's just, that was a while back. That was a while back. 20s went by really, really fast. Um, anyways, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning um, after hearing your words, uh, difficult words, about your own calling to suffering and to rejection, your death on a cross. And then we hear you calling us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you in the same way. And so Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning as it relates to to our own burdens that we carry in our lives. We ask this in your name, amen. Um, well, if you, if you have your bulletin or if you have a Bible at home, I just encourage you to keep that out because I'll be referring to it regularly uh, in this sermon as we talk about Mark 8. Um, that's my daughter over there saying hi, which is really sweet. <laughs> um, so every year I find it really interesting to, uh, to go on Twitter on Ash Wednesday, which is, you know, the first day of Lent this season that we're in. You know, because in Lent, uh, you know, a discipline, a habit that a lot of people have is to give something up. To give something up that they really love as we look forward or look ahead to Good Friday and to Easter and contemplating this this way of the cross that Jesus lived. And so there's kind of a a predictable top five, you know, things that people say they're giving up on Twitter. It's like, you know, they say they're giving up social media, so apparently Ash Wednesday, that's like the last day for them. They make that final post and then see you later. Uh, Or they give up, you know, like chocolate or they give up you know, meet for Lent, or, or they give up just Twitter because, you know, really it's a, it's a toxic app anyways that they, you know, not good for them to be on. Um, but this year I noticed a new trend, which is people saying, you know, for Lent this year, I'm just, I'm giving up. Like full stop, I'm, I'm just giving up. Or, Peter say, or people saying like, it feels like Lent 2020, it just never ended. You know, it's just, it's always Lent It's never Easter. That's what this year has been, and we're just kind of cycling back through. And it's interesting. It's been almost a year. I think in two weeks, it'll have been a year since the lockdown, you know, since we first heard of Zoom. And uh, now, like, Zoom is as important to us as our refrigerator. You know, it's crazy. Um, But, you know, off of Twitter, my friends have have kind of said a similar thing to these folks on Twitter. You know, I said, hey, what are you doing for Lent this year? What are you giving up? And, and a lot of my friends have said, like, nothing. I haven't even thought about it. You know, in the past, this has been important to me, but not this year. I'm just kind of heavy already. You know, life is already kind of so burdensome. I'm just trying to make it through. And so it does raise an interesting question. You know, when life is so hard, why make it harder by adding, you know, one of these disciplines of, of giving, fasting, and praying? And of course, that's kind of part of a bigger question, not just about Lent, but about our whole lives. You know, life is already hard. 
Why add the burdens and demands of Christianity? You know, demands about, about how we live and how we act and how we think and what we say. Life is hard enough. Why add one more thing by doing, as Jesus says, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him? And so that's, that's kind of the big meta question that I want to look at this morning. So if you zoom out a little bit from this passage that we're talking about, you see that, that this conversation that Jesus has specifically with, with his disciples, also this crowd, but also specifically Peter, you know, in this harsh rebuke that Peter receives, this conversation is kind of the middle story between two other stories. So right before this, what happens? It's this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in a town called Caesarea Philippi. So you think the whole beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what's happening? It's that Jesus' ministry is, is being revealed, right? His teaching ministry, his preaching ministry, his miracles, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, these kind of things. His, his battles, you know, with spiritual powers of darkness. That's the whole beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And then it leads up to this conversation and this question that Jesus asks his disciples. You know, the most important question that maybe has ever been asked, ever. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who responds and says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've hoped for, the one that we've longed for. We get the opportunity to see the Messiah in the flesh. So it's like this mountaintop experience, right? And then on the other side of our conversation, we have this other mountaintop experience that maybe if you were here a couple weeks ago, you guys talked about you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus brings three disciples with him, one of those, Peter, up on this mountain, and Jesus' clothes are transfigured. You know, he becomes this glowing white figure. And out of clouds, out of the clouds, the Lord speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the disciples, these three disciples, realize like way more than just a Messiah, this is the Son of God. This is somehow, this man is somehow God himself. So you have these two mountaintop experiences, and then you have, right in the middle, you have this conversation, this deep valley with its themes of suffering and rejection and death and this image, this you know, kind of grisly image of the cross. This deep, deep valley. And so you can imagine Peter, I mean, just the roller coaster of these experiences, right? Like he's the kid in the class who like got the right answer, you know, the Messiah, like, well, I'm feeling pretty good. And then he gets like really harshly rebuked. And then Jesus invites him personally to have this, I mean, one of a kind experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, this roller coaster. And it's meant to be a roller coaster for us too. It's meant to be jarring because in Mark's gospel, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry, where he's still all about the preaching and the teaching and the miracles and confronting, you know, the powers of darkness, but now he's focused on the cross. That's where all of this is heading. And that's why our passage begins in this way. You can see it there. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them as in he couldn't teach them that before. 
So Jesus and the gospel writer Mark, they want us to hold these three things together, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed God, and that paradoxically, God himself, when he came to earth, came to die a criminal's death. And that should be jarring to us. And it is as we read it. The cross was unavoidable in Jesus' mission. He could not avoid it. He was absolutely clear that suffering and rejection, this is part of what he came to do. This is part of being the Messiah. And this is true for our lives as well. In the Christian life, the cross is unavoidable. That's my first point this morning. Pain, hardship, suffering. We can't skirt around them. They're part of the deal. And it's not just like in this meta sense where we acknowledge, yeah, it's a fallen world and we all suffer. But in the, actually in this very particular sense that to follow Jesus is to open ourselves to a certain degree of pain. To deny our own desires at times when those desires are for wrong things. That's a painful reality. To take responsibility for caring and loving for our neighbor requires sacrifices to ourselves. It doesn't always feel good in the moment. It requires pain. And that's the way of the cross. That's what Jesus calls us to. And notice this detail that Mark adds in verse 32. And Jesus said this plainly. You think Mark is a short gospel, right? Like Mark doesn't include a whole lot of like flourish, a whole lot of extra description. But here he adds these few words. And Jesus said this plainly. Jesus was utterly clear about his mission. You know, he wasn't, um, he wasn't like, you know, trying to puff it up. He wasn't trying to be melodramatic. But he was clear. My calling includes the cross. And so that's a question for us to ask ourselves this morning. How often are we clear about that in our own conversations with our, with our families or with our friends or in our small groups? How often do we speak plainly about the cross that Jesus has called us to bear? Because I think it's important to tell those stories. Because otherwise, when you suffer, you think, what I'm going through isn't normal. Other people aren't experiencing this. I must be all alone. And that's just not true, right? That's just not true. In our culture, we talk a lot about, it's a lot about like self-fulfillment, about life hacks to make your life kind of easier and more efficient and better. You know, we talk a lot about self-care, how to, you know, work-life balance. We talk about healthy boundaries, you know, so that relationships don't impinge on your internal world. Uh, we talk, you know, we talk about these opportunities to, like, treat yourself, you know, like they talk about in Parks and Rec. And all of that's good, you know, all of that's fine in its place. But that can lead to the idea that suffering is is the aberration. What's normal is that you're living this happy, contented, fulfilled life. And it's just, it's just not true. And it leaves you feeling lonely when you're suffering. Years ago, I did a, a pastoral internship when I was in seminary in a, in a small black church in Boston. And, uh, and I was thinking about, um, this isn't like a major suffering by any means, but I was thinking just about that, that sense of feeling like an outsider because of these you know, Christian beliefs, particularly around sex and gender, these things that just make you different than those around you, you know, these, these beliefs that it's so hard for others in our culture to understand. 
And I was talking to my pastor just about this sense of feeling like an outsider, feeling ostracized. Like even if I really wanted to explain myself to others, would they even get it? You know, would they even give me a hearing? As so I said, Rockland, like, what do you think about that? Like, this is part of your ministry too. Like, how do you do it? How do you, you know, handle these controversial beliefs? And, and his response was fascinating. He said, he had this really deep voice. He said, he said, Will, look at me. I am a large black man. Like, I've never had a seat at the table. I've never been at the center of things. I have always stuck out. I've always been on the margins in whatever circle that I've been in. You know, I grew up in New York City, and I was a huge fan of Star Trek, and I was a nerd, and I didn't fit in there. And then I went to MIT, and I didn't fit in there. You know, I, I stuck out to people. He said, so, I mean, honestly, this stuff, it's kind of like small potatoes at this point. This is just kind of what my life has looked like. And I found immense comfort in that. I found immense comfort because I realized, you know, this, this sense of being an outsider, this isn't unique to me and my situation right now. This is a common experience in the church. It's common for many others in the church for a variety of reasons, like my pastor, Rockland. And it ministered to me to hear that testimony of part of the cross that God has called him to carry, to be faithful, you know, as a large black man in American society in this day and age. That ministered to me, even though, even though our backgrounds obviously are so different. Jesus spoke about his cross plainly. He knew what he was called to. And I bet that if, if you sat back, you could think about, you wouldn't have to go looking for your cross, but you could probably identify it this morning. Right? I mean, maybe it's maybe your cross is that you're in a particularly difficult marriage, or you have a particularly difficult sibling relationship, or parental relationship, or relationship with your child, and you understand that, that these are responsibilities that you can't just leave and extract yourself from. This is this is part of your cross. Or perhaps you know you know that that you struggle with with mental illness, or so that you're prone to a low affect or depression. Maybe you feel that really strongly at this time of year, and you just know this is part of the cross that God has asked you to carry, that God has called you to be faithful in the midst of those circumstances. When you share that with others, it can bring immense comfort because it reminds them and their circumstances, whatever those are, that they are not alone, that there are others seeking to be faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. That only comes if we, like Jesus, are able to speak plainly about the cross that Jesus has called us to bear. But of course, I mean, suffering, pain, these are not easy things to think about or talk about. There's a lot of fear and anxiety and even being honest about those things. And notice Peter's, uh, you know, his response to Jesus' words in verse 32. He hears Jesus say this. And he is just stirred, immediately stirred by this. And he takes his rabbi aside and begins to rebuke him. I mean, imagine the anxiety in Peter, like this is not what he's expecting. He's seen some incredible things. And now Jesus is talking about this shameful death. And Peter's like, no, Jesus, it does not have to be like this. You are not called to suffer and die and be rejected. Like, we are not called to that. That's not what we signed up for. 
you know, when we agreed to follow you. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to win, not lose. So all of this, I mean, it's, it's for Peter, it's got to be horrifying. It's got to be life-shattering. But what he's expressing here is, is a real temptation. He's speaking this, these tempting words to Jesus. And like so many temptations, it's not way off. It's not like he's, you know, telling Jesus, you know, curse God and die. You know, like Job's wife said to him, he's not saying that. He's probably just saying, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. It's just a little bit off of the truth. Like those temptations that we hear, you know, when, you, when you're wronged and the temptation you hear is, you know what? Be angry and stay angry. They don't deserve anything from you, certainly not forgiveness. It's off by just a little bit, right? Or when, you know, a relationship's failing, you know, you know, you deserve to be happy. You know, follow what you feel. Or when you're stressed, you know, live a little bit. One night, it doesn't matter. There's, there's like a hint of truth there. That happiness and joy and peace and comfort is ultimately what God desires for us, but not this way. And Jesus recognizes, you know, the, the tempter's voice in this. And so he turns away from Peter and gives him this harsh rebuke. I mean, more harsh than anything Jesus said to the Pharisees. Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You're talking about a good thing. I mean, Peter's maybe not wrong. Jesus doesn't have to suffer and die. He doesn't have to, but he's choosing to. This is his vocation. It's calling that he is willingly receiving from his Father in heaven. That's my second point this morning, that the cross is a choice. Notice what Jesus says in verse 34. Now calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. If. As in, you get to choose. He's not forcing this calling upon you. You get to choose whether to receive it or not. And so maybe, I mean, maybe you're a, you know, a kid or you're a student, you know, middle school or high school student listening to this right now, and you're thinking, wait, I didn't have a choice to be here right now. Like, my parents wake me up, you know, at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning. I have to be here. I don't have a choice. Or maybe, you know, maybe you're someone who's experienced, like, really profound suffering. You were the victim. You did not choose to have this as part of your life story. And you say, look, I didn't choose that cross. That was given to me. How do we understand that as a choice? Well, I want to explain that, but, but first let's ask a, a different question. What is the cross? I mean, why this metaphor? Like Jesus could have used a different metaphor, right? I mean, obviously Jesus, for, for him, it's not a metaphor. He's going to die on a cross. It, tradition holds at least Peter, too, died on a cross. But for most of us, right, this is a metaphor. So why this one? I mean, he could have said, you know, take up your shovel. You know, some like agricultural analogy. As if to say, like, your work, your efforts belong to me. Or Jesus could have said, you know, whoever wants to follow me, you know, take up your pen, you know, your quill, because your, your mind, your thoughts, your intellect belongs to me. Or he could have maybe like referred to the Abraham and Isaac story that we read this morning. Whoever wants to follow me has to be willing to give their son, their only son, 
as if to say, you know, your hopes and dreams for the future, those belong to me. But he doesn't say those. He says, take up your cross, the symbol of, of death, right? And the point of the cross is, it's, the cross isn't just the sufferings that you bear. The cross is your whole life. It's a life and death, death analogy because Jesus is asking you to take your whole life and offer it as a gift to him. Good and bad. So, so what does that mean for like sufferings that we didn't ask for? It means that Jesus is asking you to offer those to him as well. You know, you know people, you know people like this who have suffered and who could have become bitter and angry, resentful, self-pitying. They could have folded in on themselves. And it would have made sense for them to do so, given all that they've been through, but they didn't. Instead, through suffering, they became open. Open to God, open to their neighbor, open to beauty. They, be, they became people whose lives are, are characterized by gratitude and by mercy and even by joy. And that happened through their suffering because they gave that suffering back to God and said, you transform it, you do something with it. Because otherwise it's meaningless. Otherwise this suffering, these things that have happened to me, they don't do anything for me. They're just a mark against my life. But if I, were to, if I give them to God, he can do something with them. He can bring good out of them. You know, like the story of Joseph in Genesis, right? So wronged by his brothers, incredibly wronged by his brothers, incredibly wronged by, you know, Potiphar, his employer. But then later is given this opportunity to love, to take all of that suffering and take all of that hardship and offer it as a gift to the Lord and to the very people who wronged him. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's what it looks like to take your suffering, the suffering that you didn't choose, and offer it back to God as a gift. That's what it means to carry your cross, to offer your whole life to God as a gift. And I think it's interesting to reflect on so many of the you know, superhero stories or fantasy stories that we read. And you think like Peter Parker, Spider-Man, like he didn't choose to be bitten by this radioactive spider but then he has to choose like what to do with it. Is he gonna become Spider-Man or this you know, professional wrestler? Depending on which origin story you know, of Spider-Man you're paying attention to. Or like Harry Potter, right? This is, this is like the central conflict for Harry. Like he didn't choose to be the boy who lived, but now what is he gonna do? What's his calling? What's his vocation? He's marked forever, but he gets to decide what that's gonna mean for him. Frodo didn't want the ring, didn't wanna leave the Shire. He's given this responsibility, and then he has to choose what to do with it. The Lord offers you the same choice. You have a choice, just like Jesus had a choice, to willingly offer himself to God for the sake of the world. The cross is a choice. And so we come back to this, uh, you know, to this idea of why. You know, why would anybody do this? when life is so hard. Why add one more burden? And the answer is, is throughout this passage. It's that the cross, by carrying your cross, that's actually the only way to life. 
It's not just a way to life. It is the only way to life. Paradoxically, the only way to life is by the way of the cross. Look at verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. You know, this counterintuitive reality that the way to self-fulfillment is actually through self-denial. There's no other way. The way to fulfillment, true fulfillment, true peace and comfort, it can only come through self-denial, through sacrifice, through the giving of ourselves. My uh, senior year of high school, I thought, you know, I didn't make the baseball team. I'm like, what am I going to do? I could get a part-time job, but I want to do something I'll never get the chance to do again. And so I decided, I want to go pole vault. That looks really cool. And so I went out for the track team, and, and I asked if I could pole vault, and I did it. You know, it was great. And so I realized, one, that pole vaulting looks really cool, but it's actually terrifying. Right, because you get on this like long runway, you know, like the, the same one that, you know, the long jumpers are on, and you carry this huge stick, you know, it's, it's the, the stick, the pole is as long basically as the bar you're trying to get over, you know, so I've got, you know, this like 10-foot stick, or my, my school didn't have those, so I had like a 13-foot, I had this big long stick, and I'm going to sprint as fast as I can, and I'm going to jam this thing in the ground, and then I'm going to be way up there, and that... That seems cool until you're there and you're like, this is terrifying. This is silly. Why did anybody invent this? And, I, and apparently, beginning pole vaulters like myself, they all make the same mistake, which is they plant you know, their pole in the ground and then they try to like hoist themselves up on it. They grip the pole really, really tightly and try to force themselves over the bar, right? Because this is your like, security. This is the thing keeping you off the ground. It makes sense, right? And so that's what I did. And as I found, you can only get about nine and a half feet off the ground when you do it that way. And, uh, and for those, you know, counting at home, that's, real, that's a really bad height, okay? That, that's like average for the JV team. That's about as good as I could do. But an experienced pole vaulter, they don't grip the pole tightly like that. They actually push it away from themselves. They push their sense of, of safety and security away. So when they plant it in the ground, the pole begins to bend, which is a scary feeling because you're like, is this thing going to break? You know, they're like, kind of like rated to your weight, and you're like, what if this one's rated wrongly? It's going to snap when I'm halfway up there. It's going to impale me on the way down or something. These are the thoughts that go through your head when you're kind of back there on the runway. An experienced pole vaulter pushes the pole away from them. And of course, that bend in the pole you know, creates the force that then propels them higher and higher and higher. The world record is more than twice what I was ever able to do. It's about 20 feet. It's an incredible thing. I mean, all the way up to those speakers, that's insane. But it only happens by pushing that, that sense of security away from you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If you try to hold tightly to the things that make you feel safe and secure, a particular relationship your finances, your wealth, a, a certain you know, way of living where you get the nice vacations or whatever, the more tightly you hold on to those things, the less you'll actually get what you're looking for. If what you're looking for is, is fulfillment, is peace, is comfort. You actually have to hold those things loosely to get what you most desire. To get the life that Jesus is offering you, you actually 
have to give up your life. That's this counterintuitive reality. And how can this be? It's because on the other side of the cross is resurrection. And it's easy to miss that in this passage, right? Because it seems pretty doom and gloom. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But look back at verse 31. This is Jesus saying what his vocation is, his mission. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus was absolutely clear that the crucifixion was part of his mission. But he was also absolutely clear that the resurrection would be his reward. That on the other side of the cross was life. That God would not leave him alone. That God would not leave him abandoned to suffer. But that just as Jesus offers himself completely to the Father, the Father would offer himself completely to the Son. Jesus knew that without a doubt. And so we come back to where we started. Why add hardship to a life that's already hard? Because we have so little to lose and everything to gain. As Paul says in Romans, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing the joys that are to come. That is part of our vocation. That's what's on the other side of the cross. The sufferings of this life are not worth the joys that are to come. And so maybe these folks on Twitter are on to something when they say, for this year for Lent, I'm giving up. Because at the end of the day, you know, Jesus isn't all that concerned that we give up sweets or chocolate. Why? Because, because those disciplines of fasting are meant to clue us into this deeper reality. They're good because they clue us into this deeper reality that our whole lives are meant to be given to God. That's what it means to take up our cross and follow. God has something far better to give us in return. He has his own life, the triune life, the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is characterized by self-denial, by self-gift, by the giving of oneself to another. That is how God has always existed, and that's the life that Jesus is inviting us to participate in as we follow the way of the cross a life that holds nothing back. And so the invitation of Lent and always is to experience that, that triune life that only God can give. And there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to experience that life. And it's by taking up our cross and following. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know, you know the crosses that we carry. And you know the burdens that we have, um, that we have not yet given to, to you. You know the hardships that grieve us and, and mark our lives, but that we don't even know what to do with, that are unhealed and that are untransformed. And so Lord, I pray for the grace this morning for the help, that you would help us to, to choose to take up our cross, that you would help us to choose to give you every hurt and every hurting and broken thing in our lives. 
And Lord, we ask for a taste of the life that only you can give. Oh Lord, give us faith, give us confidence, give us trust that you are trustworthy and that on the other side of the cross is life. So Lord, as we turn our eyes to Holy Week and to Good Friday, Lord, help us to see Easter, that our vindication is coming, that the righting of wrongs is coming, that redemption is coming and is here even now at work, even in this church. Come, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and help us as we follow you on the way of the cross. Amen.